Hi, I'm Olivia Rudgard, a reporter for Bloomberg Green. I'm currently working on a piece about climate anxiety and I have a request for zero listeners. Climate change can cause stress, both for people directly affected by it and for those concerned about its effects on others and their future. If you're okay to share your experience of this, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what makes you worry, how your worries affect your life and what helps you feel better. Take our short survey. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you. VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Aaron Rutkoff, executive editor of Bloomberg Green. Some of you listening to this podcast are no doubt among the 70,000 people traveling to Dubai next week for the UN's annual climate summit, COP28. It's a huge event, and a lot of the focus in the lead-up has been on one character, Sultan al-Jaber. He's COP28's president. He's charged with bringing everyone together and settling the climate summit's ambitions. He's also the head of the United Arab Emirates state oil company, Adnoc. This was, to say the least, a controversial placement. Earlier this year, Zero's regular host, Akshat Rathi, wrote a profile of Sultan al-Jaber. I came on the podcast to talk to Akshat about it and ask him basically what someone like al-Jaber's leadership would mean for an institution like COP. If you'd like to listen to that episode, we've linked to it in the show notes. Today, we're giving an update about everything that's happened over the past six months before Akshat and the rest of the green team goes to COP next week. Akshat, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. All right, let's be honest, Akshat. Last time we talked about Sultan al-Jaber, You just finished chasing him around the world. We published your profile. That was probably the moment of peak Sultan panic in the climate world. You were having lots of conversations after the profile came out with diplomats and the types of climate people who turn up at COP every year. And many of those people were saying, you know, maybe quietly, maybe not on the record exactly, that they thought COP28 being run by an oil CEO inside one of the world's biggest oil nations was going to be somewhere between a disappointment and a disaster. But, you know, we've got here now, like six months later on the eve of COP28, and it doesn't feel like we're really facing down the worst case scenario that some of those people were worried about. To me, it feels more or less like we're seeing the normal kind of disputes and battle lines that happen basically before every single COP. What do you think? You're right. For the months after the profile came out, that panic had turned into frustration, sort of bubbling frustration, that little progress is being made on clearing up what the agenda at COP will be, because it's a very important thing to start nailing that down early. There are just so many issues and so many people who care about those issues that to be able to come to a consensus, you have to start to create what are called in COP language, landing zones, where you get many countries agreeing on certain things and then hash out the details so that everybody can agree on some of those things. And that just wasn't happening. And when I was in the UAE, I got told a couple of times, look, over here, things happen at the last minute. And it does feel like things have happened in the last minute. There are now some real clear landing zones emerging a week before COP28 that it feels like there will be an agreement. Now, we know by nature of COPs, that agreement is never going to be enough. But comparing ourselves to February, when I was doing the profile, there's certainly been plenty of progress. 
One of the signs of the larger potential for agreement now is the fact that we're seeing some initial two-way consensus happening between the U.S. and China. And that's usually like the the key piece that has to precede anything that happens in the bigger COP environment. Can you kind of walk us through what, what we're seeing from those two countries right now? Yeah, we have two real good examples of this. The Paris Agreement happened because there was a U.S. and China agreement going into Paris that said we are going to try and do something on climate. And so it bodes well for an agreement going into COP28 that U.S. and China have agreed on having language around tripling renewable energy into the final agreement. So let's let's look at that goal, triple renewables by 2030. You know, that sounds good. It sounds it sounds really good. Uh, I think there's something like 60 countries that have already signaled they're on board with this. Uh, you know, you got to get up to like almost 200, but 60 is a really good start. But if I'm being really honest, this goal also sounds like something that maybe would come to pass almost no matter what. This year, 2023, even with inflation and high interest rates and a couple of wars, there's been just an absolutely mind-boggling amount of solar built around the world and especially in China. So is tripling renewables too easy? Should, should the goal at COP be something harder, like reducing fossil fuels? So just a little bit of context. The reason why we are talking about tripling renewable energy is because this COP is where a technical thing happened, which is called the global stock take. It was the first taking of where things stand after the Paris Agreement was signed. And we knew going into the technical process that clearly, given that emissions are going to hit another new record this year, that we are not on the right path. And so it was incumbent upon the presidency to come up with a response, a political response from all countries to show that they are willing to try and fill that gap. And so tripling renewable energy is important because it allows for supply of clean energy to increase. The other thing that is likely going to be agreed upon is doubling energy efficiency. Another great thing because you can use less energy to do the same thing, but you're absolutely right. Just because you're increasing clean energy supply does not mean it will lead to reduction in emissions. And that's why phasing out fossil fuels is going to be a big talking point going into COP28, even though the presidency hasn't yet committed to having that on the agenda. We know that the European Union is pushing for that language. There are some tweaks being made to it, as happens with these UN negotiations. The most recent one I heard was, let's call it, an orderly phase down of unabated fossil fuels. And maybe that is one place where many, many countries will agree. But it's a fight that we are going to track as we go into COP28. So our colleague, Jen DeLui, who covers the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, and like you, runs around COP like crazy for a couple weeks. Uh, she's told us that she thinks the odds are good for finding that phrase that you just said, an orderly phase down of unabated fossil fuels that, that she thinks there's a pretty solid odds we're going to see that in the final document that has to be produced by consensus at the very end. That final communique is likely where Dr. Sultan, as the president, has the most amount of leverage. So first, I wanted you to just give us a breakdown of the jargon that that, that you just used. Uh, we got phase down as opposed to phase out. And then there's this word unabated that seems like it's a code for something. Yeah, it gets jargony so quickly because it's what countries need to agree on. They don't really care if the man on the street understands that language. But it's absolutely crucial to understand that language. We've met with businesses who then take a COP document and read through line by line to see if any of what is being said by these countries could become policy, could affect their business. So unabated 
is code for carbon capture technologies. This is something we've covered on the podcast previously. We've had two guests looking at carbon capture technologies, both from smokestacks and from the air. Uh, and we know these technologies are important and will be crucial, but how much do we deploy them is a question up for grabs. We know that Sultan Al-Jabbar, as the president of COP28, but the CEO of an oil company, wants oil and gas companies to show up at COP with solutions, and carbon capture is their favorite solution. And so Jen's reporting shows that there may be agreement around unabated because carbon capture technologies are something that many of the players coming into COP will be pushing for. And then orderly is also code for slow, to make sure that if there are panicky situations like a spike in prices or a supply crunch or disaster like COVID, there would be latitude given for making sure that fossil fuels still are in the mix for a little bit longer than perhaps the science says. And that's kind of actually what we've seen over the last uh, year or so following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the European effort to get off of Russian gas. We've seen that need for an orderly transition to be a justification for building new gas infrastructure in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world, right? We have. And that means there's going to be additional lock-in of emissions because these assets once built will have to be paid for through their use in the future. But we have also seen a faster transition in other places. So even as Europe was struggling for fossil fuels and building new infrastructure, such as liquefied natural gas uh, terminals that would import natural gas rather than getting it piped from Russia, countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh suffered from not having access to gas. And so they are now rethinking whether they should rely on gas as much when they have access to cheap solar power. So I want to also ask you to kind of sketch out what these big endgame moments are like. You know, I think at the beginning of COP, there's hundreds of leaders from around the world, usually present, and that'll be the case this year. Then there's like 10 or 12 days of kind of the, the diplomats and the activists and everybody else kind of buckling down to business, and it's a little less flashy. Then there's a moment at the very end where we get the high drama and everyone kind of tunes back in to see whether or not there's going to be a final agreement. We've seen in the past two years that we've been covering these things together, there's been tears on stage at the very end. There have been angry walkouts or almost walkouts. You've spent this year trying to understand Sultan al-Jabbar, how he works, how he wields power. So how do you think this year's endgame is going to play out with him sort of at the podium bringing this all to a close? Yeah, it's quite intense because you've been working for this two-week period of intense work. You're putting in 10, 12, 14-hour days. By the end, people are running on very little sleep. And so you do get a lot of emotions coming out uh, during the final negotiations. And the tears you mentioned were at COP26 where there was a last-minute change that India and China and the U.S. requested around the word phase out being turned into phase down. And island nations were furious, but they let it go. And Alok Sharma, who was the president in the UK COP, broke down. And if you're speaking plainly, there isn't very much difference between phase down and phase out. But if it goes in a document that's agreed by 200 countries, there is a difference. One says, you will eventually not use fossil fuels. The other says, you'll just keep using less and less fossil fuels. So it was a fight. May I don't know if it was worth having, but there you go. We, we face those situations as we go into the negotiations. 
Now, Sultan al-Jaber as president has a pedigree of running big organizations. Uh, he built a clean energy company called Mazdar and is now chairman of it. He now runs Adnoc, one of the world's largest oil companies. And he has been empowered by the president of UAE to be a minister in the government and commit to duties as a minister. But the role he is sitting in now is a very unique role. You have to bring 200 countries to a consensus. It requires lots of delicate conversations, lots of give and take. And these are things that, at least from our reporting, are not things that Sultan al-Jabbar has done in the past. He's been a climate diplomat, but he hasn't been the leader who runs and who decides which is the place that there will be most agreement on. So that's probably the final test for Sultan al-Jabbar. Now that he has an agenda that seems to move the ball a little bit, will he actually be able to get all those countries to agree? So let's talk about money, because that's certainly one of the levers that a very wealthy country like the UAE has to pull here. It's always been one of the core central frustrations and disputes between rich and poor countries at COP. Where is the climate money going to come from? Just now, before we sat down to talk, there was a headline that ran that for the first time after a decade of failing to reach $100 billion, the rich countries in the world, the Europeans, the United States have finally met the goal of ponying up $100 billion in a single year to help finance the climate needs of poorer countries. So I'm wondering, with with that as a sort of really positive sign coming into a week before COP, do you think there's a deal to be had between rich countries in the global South on climate finance? What role can Sultan al-Jaber and the UAE play in kind of bringing together a leap forward in one of the places where uh, the world's always lagged behind? So climate finance becomes a very complex issue very quickly. And earlier this year, we had Avinash Parsad, who's an economist in Barbados, come up on the podcast and really explain it in detail. And we'll link to that episode in the show notes. But the simplest way he put it was to think about it in three buckets. The biggest bucket is money that would go toward projects that would reduce emissions. Second biggest bucket is money that would go to deal with the impacts. So adapt to the warming. And then the third biggest bucket would be to compensate for the damages that would be caused by climate impacts. Going into COP, the $100 billion figure is for the first two buckets. That was agreed on in 2009 and was supposed to be met by 2020. That slowly developed countries would start giving more and more money every year. And by 2020, they will give $100 billion every year until 2025. And then there'll be more money coming. But that's for another COP. Finally, it seems, according to our reporting, that 2022 is the year they finally met it. But for context, the total energy transition money that we need is $4.5 trillion. So it's kind of small money. We're already now looking at the third bucket, the loss and damage bucket, the bucket that caught some agreement at COP27 that there would be a fund created. And we know now that at COP28, there is an outline for what that fund would look like. And those details will be hashed out in the negotiations. This is where, as you say, UAE as a rich country could make a real difference. Loss and damage, the third bucket. I mean, this is something that gets called, you know, with some dispute behind it, climate reparations, right? Let's just explain how, if this loss and damage fund existed, how it would work, who would get to draw on it and where the money might come from. Yeah, those are very live conversations and that's what's going to be negotiated on. The outline we've got so far is that in the interim, the World Bank is likely to host the fund. That fund will have to have contributions and 
very specifically voluntary contributions from all kinds of people, not just countries. Maybe philanthropies will put money, maybe corporations will put money in it. We don't know what the sum, what the total sum of that fund would be. We also don't yet have rules on how money will be drawn out from that fund or who will be eligible to draw that money out. We'll be back right after the break. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. If one of the big ongoing themes of UN climate summits is, you know, where is the money? You know, one of the answers is the UAE is is extremely wealthy, a financial center. What can we expect to see the UAE do to kind of bridge one of these constant gaps? So a good faith contribution coming to the loss and damage fund from developed countries and the UAE would be very, very welcomed by developing countries. And we're talking about it in billions of dollars. We know that the European Union has already said it will put, in quotes, substantial amount of money towards the fund. We also heard from John Kerry, the special climate envoy for the U.S., who said, The U.S. will put several million dollars, and that caused a ton of outrage among green groups. The UAE, we understand, has a desire to contribute billions of dollars, but I think it's going to try and bring as many people to the table to contribute money towards this fund so that the fund can be substantial, and that would go a long way in making sure developing countries sign off on some of the major commitments at COP. So once this starts for the next two weeks, what is Sultan al-Jabr doing during COP? And and I know we are talking about it like it's just one man, but there's obviously a large staff behind him. But what does exerting the role of president or leader look like in a diplomatic circus like this? It is a lot of listening to different groups on what are the sticking points, what are the big barriers for agreement, and then coming to a place where the president is able to figure out What could be compromises that one country group could make with another country group so there could be agreement between them? And he'll have to do this again and again and again for the many things that are there on the agenda. So it's an exhausting process. Um, Already he's been doing that all through the year, the listening tour that he talks about, where he's gone around the world trying to understand what is it that countries want. But now in these two concentrated weeks, all that work is going to either pay off or backfire. Why did the United Arab Emirates want to play host here? What's in it for a country bringing this really difficult challenge to their doorstep? 
this would be the biggest diplomatic exercise that the UAE has committed to in history. We expect many, many world leaders showing up in one country. And yes, it's a big oil economy, it's rich, but it's never hosted anything of this heft before. So the UAE is very clear. It wants to show itself as the place in geopolitics where it can speak to the US and to Russia. It can speak to China and to the EU, that it can be a champion of small island countries and get money from developed countries. It's a big ask. And if Sultan al-Jabbar can pull that off, that's going to bring plenty of kudos to the UAE, something that they would like to have. But if it goes south, it's also going to risk making true all the criticisms that have been laid on it as an oil economy trying to host a climate conference. So there are two hot wars underway at the moment, right? Russia's still invading Ukraine and Israel is uh, in the middle of an invasion of Gaza that followed the attack by Hamas inside of Israel. It's a really bad vibe for a global climate summit that's all about cooperation. So give me your sense. Does that sort of hostile backdrop actually affect the proceedings when you're in Dubai? Does it shape the outcome in any way? Well, we can look at what happened when it was just Russia invading Ukraine, which had happened early in 2022 and going into COP27. We could already see lots of talk about energy security, about quote-unquote orderly transition. And perhaps that did lead to not as ambitious an outcome from COP27 as you would have expected. The Israel-Hamas conflict has less impact on the energy world, has not yet had a huge impact on prices of fossil fuels. So there isn't a clear outcome yet. But again, it's a live situation. Things could go south very quickly. That said, though, there are some tailwinds that we should recognize too. The fact that US and China are talking, that Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met at a conference in the US is a tailwind for an agreement at COP. So geopolitics is always complicated. Bringing 200 countries to one consensus is never easy. Uh, none of what's happening in the world right now makes it any easier. There's one geopolitical wrinkle that I want to ask you about, right? This, this is, We're about to go into COP28. We don't know where COP29 is going to be. And that's that's because of geopolitics. Can you explain why we don't know where we would be a year from now? So COPs rotate between different regions of the world. Uh, COP29 was supposed to happen in Eastern Europe. And Russia is blocking any of its allied countries in Eastern Europe from hosting COP. So we are in that place where even if countries do want to host COP, Russia is going to veto their decision. And so by UNFCCC rules, which are still quite hard to understand, but the best we could make sense of it is that if no country hosts COP, then the UAE continues to hold the presidency and the default location for COP becomes Bonn in Germany, which is the headquarters of the UNFCCC, the climate body that runs the COP meeting. All right. So, you know, looking back at your time at Bloomberg Green going to COP, I like to think about your leisure activities. You know, you deserve a break, too. I don't remember what you did for fun when you were in Scotland at COP26, but uh, last year at COP27 in Egypt on the Red Sea, I definitely remember you haggling over the price of a snorkel and then spending your off hours checking out this amazing coral reef. So what does a climate nerd like you look forward to doing for fun in the glam oil city of Dubai? Oh, such a good question. 
I have been to the UAE before, but never to Dubai. And I've been told it's a crazy metropolis that one has to see because nothing like it exists anywhere else. So I might actually go out and be a tourist and see Dubai. Maybe go up the Burj Al Khalifa, the tallest building there is. It's a good answer. I want to also bring this to a close by talking about your book, Climate Capitalism. It's great. Highly recommended. It definitely has this climate positive point of view about what is capable based on human ingenuity and cooperation and effort in terms of bending the needle in the climate fight. It's kind of like a counterpoint to how everything seems to be getting hotter and worse all the time. So now like kind of channel the climate positive vibe that you take in the book towards COP28 and give me like four or five things that would be signs things went surprisingly well at this COP. That's an interesting point. Look, I mean, the book was meant to be a book about solutions. And so it's kind of positive and optimistic from the get-go. We as journalists write about all kinds of things. We write about all the problems. We do investigations, calling out power. But I think we should also give solutions some space. To me, one solution that I think we underplay of COP, which is kind of seen as meaningless, is what happens outside the negotiating rooms. There are all these side events that happen. There are going to be 70,000 people coming. The core work is done by a few thousand people. All the others are either coming for a trade show, for networking, but also many, many announcements. So we've heard over the years... 10 countries coming together to sign an agreement on deforestation, 30 countries coming together signing an agreement on methane. And there is very little follow-up. And so people rightly feel like these are meaningless things that happen on the side of COP. But recently I came across one example where actually these side things can be quite meaningful. So in COP26, the global methane pledge was signed. It said a bunch of countries voluntarily will come together and reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. It was a small group of countries, that number has grown. And what we have seen is the oil and gas industry specifically took that to heart and has actually been investing in both methane emissions tracking and methane emissions reduction. It is something that we at Bloomberg Green have been following. And finally, we are seeing numbers around investments that are actually leading to some deployment of solutions. Um, So, you know, these sideshows can sometimes produce meaningful uh, impact, but there will be a lot of dud ones too. All right. So that that's one place to look kind of outside of the main event uh, for signs of progress. But what would be the boxes that have to get checked to say this was like a very successful cop? So in the core negotiations, we already know that tripling renewable energy, doubling energy efficiency are kind of in there. We'll get agreed on. If we get any type of language on fossil fuels with all those caveats attached to it, that will also be seen as a sign of real progress. If we get an agreement on how the loss and damage fund is going to operate, who is going to put money in it and who will get money from it, that would be a real success point. If we get money commitment already in the tens of billions of dollars into that fund, that would be huge success. And if we get an agreement on who is hosting COP29, that would be progress. We should just remind people that if they don't already get the Green Daily Newsletter, we put out two editions a day throughout all of COP, and we have this really fun checklist that goes over sort of the wins and losses and other weird events that happen. We use emojis, and it's actually fun. So sign up for the newsletter to find out whether we meet any of the goals Akshat just outlined. We also drop the paywall on Bloomberg Green during those two weeks. And so you can go and read not just all our COP coverage, but 
all the archive that's been built over the past four years that Bloomberg Green has been around. Well, Akshat, I'm really excited to uh, watch you work at Dubai, and I hope you manage to get some sleep at some point during the two weeks while you're out there. Well, thank you. Sleep is always a good wish to give to a cop goer. Thanks for listening to Zero. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can email us at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd, and the senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Stacey Wong and Kira Bindram for their help on this episode. We've put a link to the article, The Oil Shakes Climate Fixer, in the show notes. Zero will be back on Thursday.